Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, this is officially our Halloween episode. <gasps> oh, goody! Yeah, so I want to hear all about your favorite things about the scariest season in the sorting chat. What a great sorting chat topic. I I love this season. I you love actively decorative... tried to buy a house that was haunted, so I don't think I knew how much you liked ghosts before we started making this podcast and I found out that you want them in your house and your body. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a, that was a weird one. I almost told that I almost told that anecdote to my to my students in the no, summer. No, don't and, do that. And then I was like, that won't. There's no way that'll help them respect you. <laughs> <laughs> One time, Marcel let a ghost use her body like a mech suit. Um, a meat sack. Like a meat sack. Is your new house haunted? Uh, I don't think so. No. Okay. What are you going to do to up up its haunted vibes this Halloween, like, then? Other than commit some murders in it? Uh, yeah. Other, I'm just, in addition I'm just, to. I'm just joking, listeners. Yes, and... Yes, and uh, I don't know. Probably, you know what? Honestly, really, nothing this season. This season is all about survival mode for me. Mm. I actually forgot that it was Yom Kippur until I was like two glasses of wine in. (gasps) And then was like, whoops. You know what? Lucky for you, (laughs) Yom Kippur is all about apologizing for fucking up, right? Yes. Yes. Let's talk about, though, the best parts of Halloween which are undeniably small creatures and costumes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Kids, kids pets, pets, kids and pets, kids and pets in matching costumes. Sorry, it just occurred to me that people could be putting their kids and their pets in matching costumes. I think that the best people do. Marcel, what is going to be the <laughs> Faye and Cohen's couple costume <laughs> this year? Oh, no. <laughs> Actually, thanks to our mutual friends, Caitlin and Steve, Cohen will be wearing a costume that matches their tiny child's costume, and they will both be dressed as puppies. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's got a tail. Um, yeah, I guess somebody who had twins was selling their kids' costumes, so it was like two for ten bucks. How do you say no to that? You absolutely don't say no to that. And actually, if you could dress Faye up like a puppy as well, that would be ideal. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. I'll do yeah. my best. Okay. But can I can I tell you one of my favorite new discoveries? I'm not sure if this is a new thing or if I've just noticed it for the first time this year. I'm ready. I love that fall brings with it like casual goth home mm. decor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't mean like big foam tacky stuff that you put like outside for the season, but I mean like plates. Yeah. Like decorative household things that are just super goth. <laughs> yeah, I think, Marcel, that right now something is happening where we, mm-hmm. the millennial generation, are becoming middle-aged homeowners. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because mm-hmm. we spent all of our money on homes and have no other money left mm-hmm. anywhere, mm-hmm. We, we go to the dollar store <laughs> and decorate <laughs> our homes with various kinds of absurd kitsch. <laughs> that checks out. That checks out. Okay. Okay. No investment purchases for us. Uh-uh. None whatsoever. Um, okay. Well, speaking of scary stuff, Hannah, what are your favorite things about this scary season? I mean, we've covered all of them. I love casual goth decor. I love kids and pets in costume. Mm-hmm. I love that suddenly for one month, we all agree that chocolate bars should be very small. Very tiny. I love watching all of the adults <laughs> being like, 
I need to get some Halloween candy. And it's like, you know, you can just buy a chocolate bar anytime you're an adult. You can just, just buy a full-sized O. Henry bar. You don't have to wait for October and buy like 70 tiny ones an individual rat. No, it's fine. It's fine. Love that. Yeah, they even sell the small ones year-round. You can just have candy whenever you want. But I like... I like I like the way that people get excited about goofy things. And my top favorite thing is trick-or-treaters, which is always a challenge for me because I never, ever live anywhere where trick-or-treaters come. And so I'm always like, just, just trolling the streets on Halloween. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird. Yeah, just wandering um... the streets, a single woman just eyeing other people's kids. I mean, you're really leaning into your spinster aesthetic, right? Absolutely. You know, eventually you're going to decorate your entire condo in candy and lure the children in, right? That's the dream. Marcel, I have a question. What is it? Is it offensive to make Halloween-themed jokes that compare the resurrection to zombies? Oh, geez, Hannah, I feel like that's really a question for our guest, not for me. It's a shame he's not allowed to talk yet because it's time for revision. (laughs) So we have brought our favorite theological expert back. So probably we should summarize what we talked about last time we got theological. I think that's a great idea, Hannah. Thank you. All right. So listeners, you may remember in our episode on the soul with special guest Matt Potts, we talked about the soul. Mm. (laughs) Right there on the chin. We started by taking a look at the Hebrew Bible, where there is no theory of the soul beyond nefesh, which Matt encouraged us to think of roughly as livingness. In the New Testament, nefesh is translated as psyche, which is closely aligned with pneuma, or spirit. What gets complicated here is the overlapping yet different understandings of the relationship between body and spirit. So on the one hand, we have the Gnostic tradition in which the flesh is the spirit's prison. Yeah, your body is a cage. Yeah, mm-hmm. that keeps me from dancing with the with one, one I you love. love. Yeah, but your mind holds but the key. But my mind yeah. holds the key. My body is a cage that keeps me from dancing with the one I love. But on the other hand, the Christian doctrine that God became flesh, known as the Incarnation, made the body a site of holiness. So, is the soul an immortal thing that can be separated from the corruptible body, otherwise known as being freed from its meat cage? Or is it something else, something more living? To answer that, Matt introduced us to the work of religion scholar Terence Johnson, specifically his concept of tragic soul life, which conceives of the soul as that which can live and flourish beyond the touch of white supremacy. In Johnson's words, quote, the idea of the soul is crucial for understanding black moral and political vocabularies. It suggests that persons are not necessarily doomed by history's haunting horrors. Whether through discourse, agency, imagination, or all of the above, the human, in this case, the Black, possesses an intrinsic value, the soul, end quote. From there, we turn to Harry Potter to think about the soul as a force that does not deny the reality of death, but that defies death through an inward strength. We contrasted Harry's willingness to face death and his correspondingly uncorrupted soul with Voldemort's fear of death and willingness to commit unspeakable acts of evil and violence to achieve immortality. And if I recall correctly, we desperately wanted to talk about book seven and that scene in the clean King's Cross station in particular. And now, at long last, we can. I know. It is thrilling. So, with absolutely no ado, let's go re-meet our guest. Hello, 
ask that question about zombies again now that we're in transfiguration class? Mm, First, I want you to introduce our guest. Fine. Okay. Matthew Potts grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and graduated from Notre Dame with a BA in English. After a brief stint in the Navy in Japan, he began graduate school and took both his Master's of Divinity and PhD degrees from Harvard. He serves on the Harvard faculty now and teaches courses on religion and literature. He's also an Episcopal priest and has ministered to several congregations in Massachusetts, and he can perform last rites over Zoom. Currently, he is the minister of Harvard's University Church. Matt is the co-host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. He likes running, cooking, walking his dog, the baseball team, the Detroit Tigers, dessert, and doing nearly anything with his wife and kids. He also likes a lot of books. Welcome back, Matt. Hi, Matt. (laughs) Hi. Hi. How's it going? (laughs) Good. How are you? I'm glad to be here. So, Matt, what's your stance on zombie jokes? Can I answer your question with a question? What do vegetarian zombies eat? I don't know. What do they eat? Grains. <laughs> so does that joke mean I love them or hate them? I don't know. I don't know. what. Oh, grains. <laughs> oh, grains. I feel like if I hadn't, I hadn't already known that you were a dad, I would know now. Because of that joke that you just did. (laughs) I'm embarrassed how long it took me. I was like, I don't get it. Gray, gray. Oh, gray. You have a PhD in literature. I know. I know. And do you know what I'm constantly yelling on this podcast is how good I am at reading text. So, Matt, when we invited you to come back for book seven, you specifically said that you wanted to talk about resurrection. Yeah. Great. What's that? What's that? Why? What is it? And why? Well, I remember, I mean, your summary was really helpful. And Mm, I remember in our last conversation, (laughs) us wanting to like talk about book seven, especially the scene where Harry sort of dies, dies, doesn't die. I don't know. That kind of dies. And you said that book seven lacked the courage of its convictions. And we were like, what? And then coach who's mean was like, no talking about book seven. (laughs) Yeah, I because I do. I you, we, maybe we'll discuss this later on. Part of me believes or wants to believe or thinks or worries that book seven lacks the courage. Like it loses its nerve at the end. Oh, But agreed. that might be just agreed. me projecting my own experience. I think Christianity does the same thing. I think the Gospels do the same thing. Whoa. They also Whoa. lose their nerve and don't actually say what they mean to say. That is a hot take. I love it. And specifically around resurrection. Resurrection is the whole thing. That's the whole, the whole question. Okay. I mean, I feel like probably we have some background we need to get before we can get to uh, what's up with the failures of the Gospels, I guess. <laughs> what's up with Christianity is, I think. What is up with the resurrection? Where are we going to start? I think that the zombie jokes are interesting because in our kind of conventional understanding, when we think of resurrection, we don't usually attribute that language to zombies. Right. The undead or the wandering around dead. Like we don't I don't think that we think of that as resurrection. That's something else. Right. Resurrection is Mm. is reanimation of a different sort. Right. Yeah. Resurrection is being living again rather than being undead. Yeah. Being being like ambulatory and dead. (laughs) That's different than being living again. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. So this is interesting. So I think a lot of the language of resurrection, or at least the use of that word, which is kind of a weird word when you think about it, the use of that word to describe being living again. I think comes out of the Christian tradition. And the the word in the Greek New Testament, the New Testament, all the gospels and so forth are, were originally written in Greek. The word that is translated as resurrection in English is anastasis, which basically means to stand up. Like if you were like taking a rest in the afternoon and then got up, you would anastasis or whatever, right? Like that's, it also just means got up in like a very like non-theological heroic superhero being alive again way. It just got up. And it's, it, it probably trans like, you know, because they're written in Greek, we don't know like what the original Aramaic speakers were, were saying because Jesus and his mm-hmm. disciples were probably spoke Aramaic, which is closely related to Hebrew. But the Hebrew word, which talks about resurrection is tekuma, which also just means stand up. The other interesting thing about this word, about this word anastasis, is so the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, most people at the time of Jesus spoke Greek. So the Jewish diaspora usually encountered their scriptures in Greek. 
and that text, that Greek text is called the Septuagint. And uh, the word Anastasis shows up in the Septuagint. And there it means like establish. In what sense? To make stand, to make it stand up, right? Yeah. So like there's a physicality to the idea of resurrection, at least in the original languages of these texts, which just kind of basically means like he got up. So like in the New Testament, there are all these proclamations about Jesus. He is risen. He is risen. Right. And I think 2000 years of like Christian obsession about this purported event is like he is risen becomes this like metaphysical triumph. Right. And it probably carried some of that sense for these early communities as well. But also the what they were saying to each other was like, you got up. Mm-hmm. You got up. <laughs> Guys, you got up. Like I'm still standing. Elton John. This is. <laughs> I get knocked down, but I get but up I again. Get up I get again. up again. That's right. Whoa. Okay, so resurrection, getting up. In a kind of like mundane sense or everyday sense. Gotcha. So the other thing we need to think about here, I would like, invite us to think about, we don't need to, I'll invite us to think about this, is is just kind of in the the you know, the religious community around Jesus's time, especially the descendants of the Israelites, right? The, there were differing ideas about the afterlife. And there were different groups of folks who were kind of arguing about the afterlife or the non-existence of the afterlife. Mm. So the dominant class, the elites, the religious elites in Judea at the time did not believe in any afterlife. They were called the Sadducees. They were the priests at the temple. They tended to, to pay attention to the written scriptures, most, the written Torah, the most. And because there's not a strong account of the afterlife or the soul in the Hebrew scriptures, beyond like this sense of livingness, they didn't really believe in the afterlife. The kind of place of the dead in the Hebrew scriptures is called Sheol. But Sheol like is just sort of, that's where you're dead. Like it's dark and nothing happens, Mm. right? It's not, there's not a sense of Mm -hmm. like punishments or rewards for things you did in this life. It's just you, when you're dead, you're dead. So the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. And they also therefore did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you need a soul or a spirit to have an afterlife? Do those two things go hand in hand? Well, we're going to get to that. That's a great question. Okay. All right. And this this is part of what's going on with resurrection, I think. So- I just want to make sure we've already established that I am a very, very bad Jew, (laughs) but we continue to have that same relationship to the afterlife in Judaism, correct? That there is no heaven or hell. I can't remember what the word is, but like the word for hell just means like absence from God or distance from God. You know, I can't speak for contemporary Judaism. Matt, Episcopal priest, (laughs) is that still true? Marcel, Jewish person, here's what. what. (laughs) I think it's the right question. I can't answer it, but I can tell you that at the time of Jesus, this was contested among people who ascribed to the Judean religion. Well, that makes sense because Christianity was just Judaism. Well, right. So what's going on is like there was another group that was a rival of the Sadducees. These tended to be not the elites, working class folks tended to be, right? Called the Pharisees. Modern rabbinic Judaism uh, is a descendant, a spiritual and and moral descendant of the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees at the time mostly did believe in resurrection. Hmm. They thought that there was an afterlife and that the afterlife would be physical, that at some point in the future, bodies would be physically raised up. Because remember what we said about the soul, the soul can't really be taken away from the body. Like, so if, if you yeah. want the soul yeah. to persist... There wasn't really a conceptual way for it to persist without the body. Now, this is really different. We talked about this when we talked about Gnosticism in the, la- the last time I visited. That was really different from Greek mm-hmm. thought because Greek thought was like, oh, the soul is easily separable from the body. In fact, that's the problem. The body is the meat cage. The soul <laughs> needs to get meat free. Cage. Meat yeah, the meat, meat cage, cage, the flesh cage. The spirit needs to get free, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the Greek thing. And you can kind of see, like, as I was saying, by this time, there had been hundreds of years of Greek influence in Jewish life and culture and practice. And you can see sort of like mm-hmm. this interest in in saying, oh, maybe we can be eternal. Maybe there is immortality. Maybe that's mm-hmm. starting to infiltrate into Jewish thought a little bit. But, but the idea that the soul is separable from the body is not something they wanted to do. So if there's going to be the persistence of the individual, there has to be some resurrection at some point in the future. Is that present in the Hebrew Bible? Never, I never got to the end of the Old Testament. <laughs> It's so long and the middle part is so many rules. Well, this is the other thing is that the is that the Pharisees believe that the oral Torah 
was as authoritative as the written Torah. So the fact that it might mm. not show up in the written Torah was not necessarily a problem. And you can understand why, right? These are these are not the elites, so they might not mm-hmm. be there might not be as many literate folks. So like the the oral mm-hmm. Torah can also be be authoritative, right? And the other thing that happens, and this is getting a little bit of history, so in 70 CE, the temple is destroyed, the second temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, and the Sadducees go down with it because they're the priests who perform all the sacrifices. So what's mm-hmm. left in the ruins, mm-hmm. like the literal ruins of Jerusalem, are Jews who are trying to figure out what it means to be faithful without being able to follow all the rules about sacrifice, which are in the written Torah. Mm-hmm. And so you have people like the Pharisees who have said, well, we can just follow these other laws. There are all kinds of moral and other kind of laws for living besides the sacrificial laws that we can follow. We can still be faithful to our God, even without a temple. And Christians were saying a similar thing. They were saying very similar things to the Pharisees, which is why in the early Christian writings, the Pharisees are seen as rivals. It's because they were both kind of like these shoots growing out of the ruins of temple Judaism, and they're kind of competing with each other. And so Christians believe very similar things, that there is a promise of eternity for early Christians believe that who were largely, especially around Jer- Jerusalem, were largely Jewish. They were identified as Jewish. They were thought that they were carrying on Judaism in the ruins of the temple. And they would say, yeah, th- there is eternity for us. There is a promise of immortality for our soul, but our soul is not separable from bodies. So the body must physically rise. If there is going to be eternal life, it's going to be in this body because my nefesh, my livingness is nothing without the mm-hmm. physical material part of myself. Basically, what distinguishes the Pharisees, this is way too reductive, but I think I'm just going to say this right now. Ooh. Oh my God, are you going to get oversimplified with 2,000-year-old theology? I'm outraged. <laughs> That's right. What, what I think what, one of the main things that distinguishes these two groups in the ruins of Jerusalem at the time are the Pharisees are like, there is a resurrection of the dead, but it's at some point in the future after the Messiah mm-hmm. comes. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Christians Mm -hmm. are saying there is a resurrection of the dead and the Messiah came and he will be here soon. Christians were basically just this this super apocalyptic group who were saying the time is now. Mm -hmm. We've seen him and we know it because his body already was risen. And so he's going to come back and all the dead are going to rise and we are going to be part of Jesus's kingdom. So it was just like very similar theologically and even morally and ethically, despite Mm -hmm. what the gospels say. But the Christians were like, no, it's happening now within our lifetime. And there are places in the New Testament which says... There are people who are reading this now who will not die before they see this happen. I mean, there are billboards in Edmonton that say similar things. Yes. So I would say that that has remained a strong strand. It is. Yeah, that's actually true. <laughs> of yeah. Christianity. Which is hard to pull off for 2,000 consecutive years, if you, if you think about it. I know, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of waiting. Yeah. But I, I wanted to I wanted to jump in because I'm suddenly remembering like, yeah, this is this is why Jews don't have cremation. This is why the body is supposed to be buried intact. And this is why there isn't like embalming or whatever, because your body has to be uncorrupted and intact yep. for when the Messiah comes. Right. And then you are you get you you get up. Yeah, and for a long time, yeah, you get up. That's right. And for a long time Christians also would not it was not right to be burned after death, cremated after death, because the body had to be a lot in such a state that this could feasibly happen, that the body could could get up. Yeah. I had a, a youthful obsession with medieval reliquaries. That doesn't surprise me in the least. No, it's probably the least surprising fact I've ever said about myself. <laughs> but like in my early 20s, I really liked touring around to like old European Catholic churches and seeing like a saint's finger. Mm. Ew. <laughs> But it's basically, it's that idea, right? That, like, the closer you are to God, the less corruptible your flesh becomes, the longer your body will be preserved, I guess, the more ready it is for the resurrection. Wow. Now, one of the things that happens early on in Christianity is this Greek kind of influence and impulse that we see in Gnosticism, which is like, oh, the soul can get away from the body, right? starts to dominate Christian mm-hmm. thought, even as Christian thought resists it, mm. right? So Christianity in the early centuries wants to insist upon bodily resurrection, physical resurrection. In the Nicene Creed, which is like one of the early confessional statements, people are meant to say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, right? They have to specify that that's the body that's resurrected, not just a spiritual resurrection. And I think you'll probably find this is true in Christian communities today. When you actually ask Christians on the ground then and now what they conceive of when they think of the afterlife, they're probably thinking about something spiritual, right? When they think about like, you know, the yeah. the wings on the clouds up in the heavens or whatever, 
I'm not sure many Christians actually think about it that way, but they, they don't think the zombie thing. They don't think the corpse is actually going to struggle out of the ground and get up and start yeah. walking around on earth. <laughs> they think that there is a spiritual realm to which one's soul, immortal soul, escapes and eternally resides. And, you know, without judging any contemporary believers' opinions, that would have been seen as heresy in the first century and exactly the wrong thing exactly opposite of what Christians were claiming who were saying, nope, the flesh, the body is the thing that is resurrected. Now, I said heresy, but that's complicated because because <laughs> a lot of what counts as orthodoxy and heresy just has to do with who had power, right? And so there were lots of early, lots of early followers of Jesus, the Valentinians and so forth, who were perfectly fine thinking that the spirit escaped the body and that's where eternity was. So these things have always been present, but that's, that's the first kind of thing I wanted to cover about resurrection. So it's the presence of Greek thought that is leading to a sort of desire to think of the body as something you leave behind. How much of it do you think is also just the like day-to-day reality of looking at a corpse and being like, well, that's no good. For sure. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Because unlike the relics that you see in Europe, (laughs) right? Most bodies decompose. Like it doesn't matter if you you don't burn them. They become dust, right? Like that's that's part of the thing. Mm And again, also, maybe just after generation after generation of generation of Jesus not returning and this not happening, then it kind of leads you to spiritualize the, your, your sense of what's going on. So the resurrection of the body becomes understood as, I don't want to get ahead and, and move to our next segment, but it becomes kind of like what happens in King's Cross, where Harry's body is on the ground there, but his spirit is in, or soul or something is in some kind of conversation in this other spiritual realm, which is embodied. And it's blurry here. I mean, the way the the Apostle Paul, he talks about the body, the spirit, and the soul. And he also talks about spiritual bodies in addition to fleshly bodies. So this stuff is very muddled and messy. But I think that's the point, is that it's muddled and messy. Like, these things had not been worked out, and certainly not worked out as clearly as, like, kind of contemporary, conventional Christian depictions of resurrection would have it. So... May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Whoa, Hannah. (laughs) What do you personally, as a Christian, make of the promise of resurrection that is 2,000 years late? Personally, I I don't have a belief in the afterlife. Really? Coach is clapping. I just, I need listeners to know. This This is kind of a great transition to me saying, I think Christianity loses its nerve. So can I ask you the, the two-in-one mm, question? Absolutely. Yes. Like, when you look at Christianity and you hear Christians saying, he is risen or whatever, like, what version of that story have you absorbed? Like, any? Like, do you like do you know, like, what the resurrection looks like? What are Christians talking about when they say Jesus is risen or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He died. He was He was crucified. And then his body was removed from the cross. And it was entombed in a cave. Mm-hmm. With a big stone in With front. a big stone. Big stone. And then mm-hmm. three days later? Yep, that's right. Good. Somebody went to, I can't remember who, but somebody went to the so cave. So important who, but that's okay. Oh, is it important who? I think it's important. Different, Peter. Different people. It was Peter. No. Peter. Mary Magdalene. It was the women. Oh. The men all ran away. The men all ran away. They betrayed him and ran away. The women went back to the tomb to care for him. Classic. To care for the dead. And... The rock had been rolled away. Yeah. That's the big thing I remember is the like returning to the tomb and the rock has been rolled away. Yeah. And the body is gone. And the body is gone. And then they meet a guy. And the Mm -hmm. thing that I really remember is that lots of people don't believe it's him. Mm -hmm. Like when they meet him, it's not obviously him in some way. Like, in some way, the encounter with the risen Christ is confusing to his closest disciples, which I think mm-hmm. implies that having risen, he is not identical to hmm. Interesting. Yeah. what he was like before. Ri- Sorry, I'm getting deep here. Um, no, that's great. But yes, no, this is my this is my knowledge. So he rises. And then mm-hmm. unclear what happens after that. I think after he rises, he ascends. So full disclosure, I'm a, a patrilineal Jew. So I actually went to Catholic school. So here's, Whoa. I know it is complicated. And as is my, <laughs> as is my feelings <laughs> about Christianity. So what I remember is that there was a lot of, like Hannah was saying, there's a lot of the closest disciples meeting the risen 
Christ and them not believing and him, I don't want to say getting mad, but basically like telling them that if they didn't believe that he was the risen Christ, that then they were not believers. And the reason I remember this is because this for me was really the kind of like, I didn't have the word for gaslighting at the time, but this was one of the things that I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that these people who should recognize this person, like it it never seemed like it was framed in a like, I can't believe it's you. It It was more like, no, 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 you cannot be him. Yeah, that's right. And there and there are these other scenes, too, which we referred to earlier on, like where someone puts their fingers in a side wound to test to who's see that? if he's... Thomas? Thomas does that. There are also these scenes of Jesus eating. So he sits down to breakfast with them. Because you can see this insistence that, like, this is not a spirit. Spirits don't have gotcha. breakfast. Right? You can't put your finger in the side wound of spirits, right? You can't put your finger in the side wound of a spirit. So this must have been a physical resurrection it's not happening someday when the Messiah eventually comes. The Messiah has come. It's him. And this is going down. Just wait a couple of years, right? Any yeah. day now. So it is a resurrection. Well, <laughs> well hang on. Okay. So Christian Okay, okay yes. So Christian we'll theology yeah, sorry, sorry. says this is a resurrection. It is it is a real body. It's not a spirit because he's sitting down and eating and you can stick your fingers mm-hmm. in him. So then, the top quality of the body. I don't body. understand. <laughs> top quality body. Mm-hmm. You can finger it. So then, so then, what's the other resurrection that's two thousand years late? Like, if that yeah. happened, then who's saying he's going to come back? Wasn't he just here? Why does Why does he have to? How many times do you need your Messiah to be resurrected? Is what I think I really wanted. Well, the problem there is that for early Christians is that. The Messiah has come, but he hasn't done the Messiah thing. Like, how come the Romans are still in charge? How come Jerusalem has been destroyed? Of course. And one thing that happens is that, and this happens in Pharisaic Judaism and Rabbinic Judaism as well, but the, the mission of the Messiah becomes more spiritualized. Like, it's not necessarily to actually create a political institution in this geographical location. It has something to do with our relationship to God in a fuller way. So Christians turn to that more quickly because they have this problem where they want to say the Messiah came, but he didn't do the thing the Messiah Mm -hmm. is supposed to do. So maybe we had the wrong idea about the thing the Messiah was supposed to do. But also, he's also going to come back and rule the globe at some point, too. Like, I mean, you talk to contemporary evangelicals. They have a very literal idea that Jesus will come back and that the globe will become the whole New Jerusalem and that Jesus will rule over the globe. Right. So I want to get back to the reason, like me saying that I think Christianity loses this nerve. Because these are, uh, you're, you did a great job, the two of you. These are all, like, these are all the stories. There's also all this ambivalence as well. Like, as you said, like, there's... People don't recognize Jesus at first. And then when they recognize him, he disappears from their sight like a ghost, Mm. right? Physical bodies don't do that, (laughs) right? Before Jesus has the fingers put in his side, he enters through a locked door, right? He somehow appears before them, fully physicalized, materialized. Physical bodies don't do that unless there's some very weird stuff going on, right? So like in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a crowd that sees Jesus and it says, well, not everybody saw, but some did. And you should believe the ones who did. The ones who doubted, did, you know, they're probably just not very, not very faithful. Doubters. So there's a lot of ambivalence going on here. And nowhere is the ambivalence more stark than in the first written gospel. Not the one that shows up first in the, in the Bible. The one that shows up first in the Bible is the one that early Christian theologians liked most. They put it first. Figures. But the one that was written first, that's, that was Matthew, the one that, uh, that shows up favorite. first. Right? Mark's my favorite, too. So Mar- Matthew was, is the one they like most. Matthew lifts most of Mark, and Mark was written first. Mark was written in around the year 70, right when Jerusalem is under siege, and like literally tens of thousands of Judeans are enslaved. Another maybe 100,000 are killed. The temple is destroyed. There are reliable sources, relatively reliable sources, that say that at times during the siege, as many as 500 Jews a day were being crucified, right? So, like, you can see why these are apocalyptic texts, right? Yes. This is an apocalyptic situation. The city and the center of our life and culture and religion, the temple, has been destroyed. It's supposed to be the the earthly home of God destroyed. And 500 people a day crucified and tens of thousands being put into slavery, tens of thousands being murdered and slaughtered by the Romans. And then the Gospel of Mark shows up. 
And in its first version in the Gospel of Mark, the women go to the tomb and they see that the tomb is empty and they don't understand what's going on and they they run away in terror. The last word of the Gospel of Mark, the first version of the Gospel of Mark is terror. They run away in terror. That's written about 70 CE. About 10 years later, Matthew rewrites it, lifts a lot of Mark, and then adds all this stuff about Jesus showing up and talking to the disciples and explaining what was going on. Then Luke shows up around the same time, also lifts from Mark and says many of the same things. Oh, by the way, Jesus came back and had ate some fish with the disciples and also made a bunch of promises. And we all saw him, right? And then in about the year 100, John shows up and John has Thomas fingering Jesus' side wound and all other kinds of experiences with the risen Christ. John adds a lot of real fun flavor. That's right. And then around that time, around the time of John, an extra eight verses are added to the Gospel of Mark. Ooh, at the end? At the end, which say, oh, and then, by the way, we forgot to mention that after this, Jesus appeared to his disciples. Yes. Jesus, just like Matthew and Mark and John said, Jesus appeared to his disciples. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to end this thing in emptiness and terror. But the first version of the gospel is like, here's what resurrection is. It's an empty tomb and you're terrified because you don't understand Mm. what's going on. Right. Now, there is Mm -hmm. one earlier account of the resurrection. It's not like Mark was the first person to talk about the resurrection. And this is from Paul. Paul didn't write a story of Jesus' life and never knew Jesus while Jesus was alive. But started following Jesus afterwards, and he gives an account of having a vision of Jesus. He called it an appearance, which is why he started following Jesus. And he said the disciples also had, Jesus also appeared to them. But he's not very specific about this. Was that mm-hmm. the part where he fell off his horse? He, he falls off his horse, right? He, he was Saul, and then he became Paul after seeing Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus told him, your name isn't Saul anymore, it's Paul. That's right. But, but so he doesn't really get theological about what those appearances are. He just says, Jesus appeared to me. Just like he appeared to, to the brothers in oh. Jerusalem. And that's it. He's not like, oh, we ate fish. Oh, we put his finger on his side. Oh, it was absolutely physical and not just me having a vision. It's He's just like, I just saw Jesus. And he told me to stop persecuting these people who are following him. And I started following him too. Okay. Right? So what do you make of this? I mean, other than clearly people were trying to sort of add... Yeah. A different interpretation of the resurrection or one that maybe sort of was more comfortable. Yeah. More comfortable. Right. So can I introduce a theorist now? Of course. Yeah. 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 So there's a, there's a French Jesuit sociologist named Michel de Soto. Soto wrote. <laughs> a big fan. Oh. Yeah. You yeah. Know walking around the city. Oh, yeah. We absolutely. You know, de Big de Soto yeah. fans over there. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Actually, de Soto might be the only dead white French man who I cite in my book. Really? Ooh. So, Sertot, right, it was mostly disciplinarily, like, he tended to work in sociology, and that's where he's best known. But he was a Jesuit brother. He wasn't a priest, but he was a Jesuit brother. The Jesuits are a really influential order of Catholic priests and brothers, mostly priests. They tend to run educational institutions. They are very influential. They did a lot of the colonizing. Yeah, they did. We, one of the reasons they became very influential is because they were on the, f- the leading edge of the Catholic Church's missionary strategy slash colonization efforts, right? And so they were mm-hmm. in places that were European colonies, and they were conducting missions in those places and building schools, and, and that's why they're also this important educational order. Sertot wrote in like the late 60s, 70s. He was kind of part of the kind of French theory flourishing in the Paris universities in like the late 60s and 70s. So he knew Lacan and Derrida and Christopher and these other they folks. Hung out, they hung out really in well. high five yeah, they hung a out. lot. They hung out. Yeah. He wrote some essays on theology. A couple of interesting ones. One is called From the Body to Writing, A Christian Transit. And the other one is called How is Christianity Thinkable Today? But, but oh. the, even if you can kind of see what he's getting at with From the Body to Writing. A Christian mm-hmm. transit. Because mm-hmm. what he basically says is like, we need to stop looking at all the appearances afterwards. He says the important thing is the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. And the emptiness is the actually the crucial thing. 
Now, he doesn't actually connect this exactly to resurrection. I connected to resurrection personally using Sertel. Mm-hmm. But what he wants to say mm-hmm. is, like, the most important thing about the resurrection is not that Jesus, like, shows up bodily again to the disciples. In fact, he implies, he doesn't say explicitly because he'd probably get in trouble with the Jesuits. He implies that Jesus coming back and appearing to the disciples is kind of a problem. And it's, that's why he has to ascend mm-hmm. again and disappear again. Because what's really crucial mm-hmm. is the emptiness and absence of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if Jesus is present still, fully in front of us, right, then he's the Messiah. Then he's the one that's going to save us. But if he's gone, then it's the people left behind, our responsibility to step into the space that he has left and to continue on his ministry. Mm. Right. So if, if his ministry of love and justice and care for the oppressed and marginalized and so forth, right, if he's still around, mm-hmm. if he's standing next to me, then that's his job and he should do it. Mm-hmm. Go do your job, right? If he's gone, but we want to say that his work still needs to be done, then mm-hmm. what he basically says is the condition for the possibility of a church is the empty tomb. Because if Jesus is around, mm-hmm. we don't need a church. Because he's gone, the church must step into this role. And what it suggests is that resurrection, new life after death, is not necessarily about anything about the afterlife or appearances or any of that stuff. And in fact, he suggested it's dangerous. If we think we see Jesus someplace, if we identify Jesus someplace, that's dangerous because then you're like displacing what should be your commitment to working on behalf of justice and mercy and all these things onto some other idol, which is not the thing, <laughs> right? And then we see this in Christian yeah. history. You'll start idolizing that other thing mm-hmm. at the expense of works of justice and mercy and everything else. So what he needs is like, even if you think you found Jesus, you didn't keep looking. Mm-hmm. And the manner by which you keep looking is to keep doing the works of justice, and right? So for him, resurrection is like first ending of Gospel of Mark, empty tomb, terror because the world is falling apart around us. So what do we do? We have to step into that space and do something about it. And so resurrection becomes something more like, or at least one definition of it could be this new life that steps into the place of absence and pain and mourning and grief that has been left in order to try to create the conditions for justice and mercy and love in the lives that we could begin Well, it's standing up. Get up. Get up. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I really want to get further into this, like, okay, what if we don't believe that there is an afterlife? What does that mean for our understanding of the resurrection? But I think it might be helpful to do so with, say, a textual example that would let us work through some of the sort of ethical implications. Maybe. I think it's good. Do you have any ideas for candidate texts? Could you suggest one? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have one in mind? Let's go talk about Harry Potter now. (laughs) (laughs) What a good idea, Hannah. Yes. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now that we've established that it is funny to make zombie jokes about resurrection, I can start making a lot of them in owls. But I won't, because I'm sensitive. Nah, I just can't think of any jokes. Except this one. How many vegans does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. I'm better than you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's talk about... Harry dying and coming back, and also maybe Voldemort's gross flayed soul bit. I think we've got to start with the hot ticket, right? Like when we were talking to you, Matt, about coming back to talk about the soul, and you were like, I want to talk about resurrection. You said that you didn't think that Harry should have come back to life. Right. And that's where I think we should start because if everything else gets cut, this is this is the conversation that we're gonna have. Okay. So answer for your crimes. 
So I just said that I think the Christian tradition loses its nerve. And that's because it has this figure, which it, you know, it's telling us all through the Gospel of Mark, this is the Messiah. And then he dies and the tomb is empty. And it just stops mm-hmm. the story there and invites the reader to be like, okay, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it, right? And then everything that happens later in the Christian tradition, remember I was talking earlier about like the difference between the Pharisees and the early Christians was that the Pharisees were like, the Messiah's still coming. And the Christians were like, no, he came. He, he just had to take a quick bathroom break. He'll be right back, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. And then all the kingdom stuff, right? But if the Messiah came and then left and now it's on you, that's a different task than wait till he comes back again. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways I read the Harry Potter series is that an anxiety throughout the series from book one is Harry's messianism. The mm-hmm. boy who lived. Mm-hmm. Only he can fight Voldemort. Only he can save us. And I think what the book does, and actually does pretty persuasively throughout, is actually try to like suggest that that is a misperception, a misunderstanding on the part of the wizarding community. And what it will actually take at the end, what we see in that final scene when Hagrid carries Harry's not actually dead body out is it takes the whole community. Mm -hmm. It takes his friends, the whole school, all the people who are fighting on behalf of justice. It takes them to defeat. And what I want what I want to be the case is that they do that I mean this is, it wouldn't be a very good children's book maybe if this happened, right? But I feel like him actually being able to to hop up and join the fight with them Mm -hmm. is a version this is where I might be projecting my disappointment of Christianity upon the Harry Potter series but it's a version of Mm -hmm. them kind of losing the same nerve. Right. Like even if Harry's gone, we are still here. We can still do this. We will still do this. We step into the place of his absence, full of grief and mourning and emptiness and terror, but still ready to to fight for the things that he wanted to fight for and to do the things that 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 we believe that are worth doing. Right. And so part of me says, like, if he doesn't come back, then it's even more clear that what we need is the community to step into the place of the one who we thought was the only one who could do it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. does, I think, undeniably fail in its narrative nerve in that final moment because the series is arguing against messianism. And one of Voldemort's failings is that he does believe in the idea of the Messiah. He, in fact, overinvests in the idea of the Messiah and thus creates his own defeat in the hands of this child. And so in that moment where Voldemort taunts everybody at Hogwarts, at the Battle of Hogwarts, and says, you know, your Messiah has fallen. You must give up now. And they're like, no, that's actually not what we're doing here. Like, we are not a messianic cult. We are a community that believes in a set of values, and we're not going to stop believing in that set of values because you killed this kid. In fact, your murder of a child in front of us is going (laughs) to really lead us to double down. That's on right. this whole idea that we don't want you in charge. And so right. he has mm-hmm. he has misunderstood and the community steps up and that that is his sort of, you know, fatal flaw is that he constantly misunderstands you know what Dumbledore insists on glossing as love, which is a bit yeah. simplistic, but you know Voldemort right. does constantly misunderstand. And then Harry jumps up, picks up the elder wand and single-handedly defeats Voldemort, thus right. undermining everything. The story has just said about not needing singular heroes, about not needing a messiah figure, about Harry's actual strength not being like military prowess, but his capacity for love. Yep. So yes, but <laughs> I know I'm not gonna yes and I'm gonna yes but. <laughs> the look of betrayal on Hannah's face. I feel like <laughs> I know, I know. Harry doesn't pick up the elder wand. Voldemort has the elder wand. And Harry is just using whatever wand, I guess Draco's second wand or the one he got from his mom. I don't know. So Harry's using that one. And it's Voldemort's attempt to Avada Kedavra Harry that ends up killing him, right? Like, like Harry doesn't kill Voldemort because he can't, because that would mean that he mm. would... He would do the unforgivable curse, which would make him bad, but he's not bad. Yeah. So I think I agree that I think that the series could be more nervy, Mm. but I also think that it won't be more nervy because like we isn't (laughs) because it it is not. And, and, And that is largely because we talked about the sort of conservative nature of the hero's journey, which is that you're always attempting to 
reestablish the the status quo, mm. right? And so what I want to suggest maybe is a way that the series does attempt to resist its messianic message is in the fact that none of the dead who come back do actually come back, right? Mm. So, like, I remember reading it for the first time and being so certain that Sirius was going to come back. Me and too. then when Dumbledore died, being so certain that Dumbledore was going to come Especially back. Especially because we were primed to believe that because oh, of Gandalf, yeah. because yes. of Aslan, <laughs> because of the way that yeah. all of the yes. magical yep. messianic figures in other yes. thinly skinned Christian allegory fantasy series, <laughs> they always come back. They're always like, totally. I'm still a lion and I'm fine. Totally. And this final book in particular is very much like, oh, yeah, there is a thing that'll bring people back. There is. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. Right. Yeah. And you can't. And you can't. Yeah. And I remember even when in book six, I remember when they introduced the idea of the Inferi and I was like, oh, for sure. For sure. That's when we're going to say Voldemort's going to bring them back. They're going to be gross zombie versions and it's going to be really upsetting. And I remember being kind of disappointed that the series didn't go in that direction. But again, it's that's yep. a different series that I was <laughs> wanting. <laughs> I hadn't been thinking of the Inferi Marcel, such a useful addition to the conversation about how resurrection is figured in this book because it's another way in which Voldemort is like bringing the dead back you can bring the dead back magic has no limitations and that then is contrasted to the the fact that like Harry's proper understanding of the use of the resurrection stone has to be rooted in knowing that you actually can't bring anybody back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so when I say that I think the book loses its nerve, I'm being deliberately provocative because I think the other thing the book is doing is actually trying to be nervy in exactly that way, right? So if you think about the Resurrection Stone, it doesn't bring anybody back. Mm -hmm. What it does is make him confront his mourning. It makes him look, look more directly at the people mm -hmm. he cannot bring back. And it's only in facing that directly that he's given kind of the resolve to walk exactly into the scary thing that he doesn't want to but walk he into. he actually has to come face to face with the irreversibility of death. Exactly. Which is like, and the Gospel of Mark, the women running away from the empty tomb in terror, right? Like this yeah. is when he's going, he's not like, I bet what's going to happen is I'm going to meet up with Dumbledore in a couple of minutes and we're going to have a nice chat in a very clean King's Cross station. And then he's going to be a choice about where I want to. That's not what. Harry thinks Harry looks at all the people he has lost and just like, this is what it is. Right. So I think that's nervy. And he asks if it'll hurt. That's nervy. Right. And also like the the scene we already you already discussed as well, which is when, you know, Neville and everyone rise up, they think he's dead. Right. They they don't. It's not like he pops up first and they're like, oh, we can do it. <laughs> right. As mm -hmm. you said, very eloquently like that. It's in spite of that. It's like you just killed a child. That's not that's, that's we're going to mm -hmm. live mm -hmm. into our values. We didn't do this because we thought he was the one. We did it because we love him and we still love him. And so take that. Right. <laughs> and I think you're right, Marcel, as well. Like I hadn't really thought about it, but like, you know, I think the, the movies do a worse job at this than the books. Because yeah, right, because in the movie, the final scene very much looks like two superheroes mm -hmm. at the end of yeah. the the Marvel series, like or whatever, like going at each other and try, seeing who's more powerful. But yeah, you're right. If the book is careful to describe this as Harry's just like, it's, this is you. You're doing this to yourself, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. He's very careful to describe that, and that's the way it, it plays out in the books more clearly. Now, like you said, I think that there are just there's a momentum to the hero's journey kind of trope, and the momentum to the way we do read literature and to this whole history. You know, Harry is this uh, an additional thinly veiled Christ figure, like Gandalf and Aslan and all these others. Mm -hmm. And so there's also this all this momentum to have him get up. But I think within the confines of those tropes and the weighty, weighty, like, cultural momentum, I actually think that the series does a pretty good job of poking at that and making us confront mourning and confront loss and accept it rather than assume that, you know, the way the Christian tradition often talks about it is like, you have to accept death, but not really, because if you do, you get to live, right? Like, mm. th this wink. book, this yeah, there's a little wink. In this book, it it winks after all the characters don't wink, yeah. right? The text <laughs> winks at you after everyone else has <laughs> has not winked. Yeah. I mean, speaking of of losing your nerve, I think part of the the deep dissatisfaction that so many readers have with the terrible epilogue to this book is that mm -hmm. 
if you leave it before the epilogue, it's a scene of Harry's retreat, Hmm. right? So in that final moment, yeah, he has come back and he did the thing that was his job that he that had been made clear to him that he was his, that it was his job but he did it sort of without glory and without any interest in the praise that yeah. was going to he- be heaped on him and in that moment where he is being invited by his community to like step into the position of the hero he le- he leaves he like mm-hmm. he wants to like nope out of that whole situation and it yeah. it would be a more interesting ending to end it with Harry being like, I'm actually, I'm actually going to go. And mm-hmm. that epilogue, I think part of why the epilogue feels so dissatisfying is because there is a little glimmer of some sort mm-hmm. of yeah. like a refusal of the hero's journey yeah. in that final battle, or at least a complication of the hero's journey. And then the the epilogue just ties this <laughs> neat little bow on the whole thing. Like, don't worry, everything's back exactly the way it was before. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't worry right. about it. Everything's fine. Yep. Nobody there at King's Cross. You have no further the responsibilities. Kids are on the train. Yeah. Mhm. Can we talk about the flayed soul bit? Just just going back to that conversation about how gross bodies are. Do we think that this series presents a belief in the afterlife? What is going to happen to Dumbledore after King's Cross? So I would argue Nothing, because Dumbledore isn't there because it's in Harry's head. Dumbledore isn't any more there than, like, Harry's parents are there in the forest with him. Mm. I mean, I think what's really interesting about that scene, for me, I mean, my reading is that, like, whatever you believe in the afterlife, you can see it in that scene. Yeah. hmm Yeah. So it really invites a reader in and allows a reader to, like, not have to give up anything that they feel committed to in order to go through the scene with with the text, right? So if you have a strong mm-hmm. belief in the afterlife, there's plenty there for you to be like, okay, yeah, this will work. And if you don't have a strong belief in the afterlife or have no belief in the afterlife, you can also say, this will work. I think what's interesting about resurrection here, or at least some of the conversations, the two conversations we've been having, is that Voldemort's soul, when rendered materially in this space, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is so wounded and flayed, like, kind of what's presumed in that depiction is that there is an essential relationship between physical and spiritual reality because his soul is broken and flayed and abused. So also in this space, the physical manifestation is going to be similar, right? And so like that idea that the soul can't escape the body, that these things go together and that actually the condition of one relates directly to the condition of the other, that like Mm. seems to speak back to some of those early commitments about the soul not being able to be divorced from the flesh. Mm -hmm. So then what should we make of the fact that, if I'm remembering right, Voldemort's flayed soul bits are sort of figured as a child or as a a grotesque baby, Mm. kind of, and that Harry feels a sense of, like, should I help it? And Dumbledore is like, nah, you can't. Yeah, he says there's nothing you can do for it. Yeah, nothing you mm-hmm. And Harry, again, like, he does it twice, right? Like, he he sees it, I think, once and is like, oh, should I help it? Dumbledore says, no, you can't. And then, again, Harry's like, are you, sh- are you sure? Like, a little while later. Mm. And so I'm just wondering, like, what, what, uh, how, uh, I don't know what to do with that. I never know what to do with that. How did the two of you read that scene? You know, one of the things that it makes me think about is, you know, Harry has been positioned his whole life as a savior figure. Mm-hmm. And we see him having this sort of complex relationship to his own status as a potential savior that he, you know, Hermione accuses him of this. She's like, you you have internalized this narrative about yourself and you... Mm-hmm. Believe it is your job to save people, and that is being actively used against you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're being manipulated by the belief that it is your job uniquely to save everyone. And in that moment, his instinct is still, I can save Voldemort somehow. Mm-hmm. Right? I can intervene in mm-hmm. some way. I can redeem him in some way. You know, again, a sort of moment of like Harry kind of believing in his own capacity. And he is told by Dumbledore in that moment. No, he is beyond saving. 
mm-hmm. which immediately makes me think about Dante Ooh. and the sort of the encounter with damned souls and the understanding that there is no external force that has damned these souls. They have done this to themselves. That the violence done to your soul is a violence that you do to your soul, not a punishment being laid upon Mm. you by an external authority. I think that is one of the things that we see in that moment, that like Voldemort's not being punished. Voldemort's not going to hell because he's a bad guy. Voldemort has destroyed himself through his own acts. And that's not something that Harry can fix. Yeah. Very well put, Hannah. I find that a very satisfying response. Which does bring us back to that exactly sort of the version of the resurrection you're describing, Matt, right? Which is one where it's like you can't sit back and wait for an external authority to punish or reward. Mm-hmm. You just got to you just gotta do it your own damn self. Yeah. Jesus almost never talks about the afterlife in the Gospels. I think there's one place that he does. And he's, he's telling the parable. It's it's not clear to me. Actually, it's, I'm hedging. I, to me, it seems like he's actually not trying to say, hey, here, everybody, here's what the afterlife looks like. He's just telling the story, right? Mm-hmm. But the, mm-hmm. the situation he describes is much like this, where the wealthy man who's cruel to another man named Lazarus puts himself in a place where he can no longer connect with Lazarus or anybody else. And Abraham, in this mm-hmm. case, who is with Lazarus in the good place, says to the wealthy man, I'm sorry, we can't help you. Like, even if we wanted to, we can't get to you. Like, you have isolated yourself. You're too far gone. There is this idea that even, you know, once you've finished this earthly test, if if you failed in a particular way, like nothing, not even the reach of God can get to you. And it is, it is as you said, Hannah, it is around sort of like you've done this to yourself. Like you made some choices that have consigned you to this space. And that's just where you are. It's not punishment. It's not a choice that someone else has made for you. It's a choice you've made for yourself. Which does go hand in hand with that final moment in which... You know, Harry, in his encounter with Dumbledore in the King's Cross limbo. Oh, yeah. Is also basically being told by, like, the one guy who he wanted to be an unassailable authority figure. He's being told, sorry, there aren't any of those. There is no outside person who is perfectly right and perfectly good who you can look to for constant direction but Dumbledore's like yeah I fucked up I dabbled in Nazism I made a bunch of shitty mistakes I did Mm -hmm. terrible things to you as a child like I am just a guy yeah yeah right oh man what if we're all just guys (laughs) what if we're all just guys Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you want to hang out with us some more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease. And if you want to hang out with us even more, you should go to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where you can get all kinds of amazing perks like exclusive merch, movie watch-alongs, blooper reels, and literally so much more. Hannah, do you have anything to plug? Sure do. Wrote a plug segment into the end of this so I could plug my book. My book is out. (laughs) A Sentimental Education came out last month now. But guess what? You can still buy it and read it. And I think it's Mm -hmm. pretty good. So I think probably you should. And also I talk about this podcast in it. So it's Mm -hmm. pertinent to your interests. And hopefully by the time Mm -hmm. this comes out... The audiobook is also going to be available. So if you prefer engaging with my work through my famously mellifluous voice, there's going to be an audiobook version that I read and edited and produced myself. It was a bad idea. I regret it. So go to <laughs> audible.com and buy that, that book, please. So you might regret it, but listeners everywhere are... Thrill. Yeah, you have to make my unbelievably bad choice worthwhile. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Marcel, do you have anything you want to plug? No. Matt? 
Do you have anything that you would like to plug? I, in fact, I do. I'm following uh, Hannah's example. I have a book coming out in just yes. about a month at the end of November. Wonderful. The book is called Forgiveness, an Alternative Account. And it basically does with forgiveness kind of what I've done the two times I've come on this podcast, which is basically argue that the Christian tradition has it entirely backwards and has, has, has misapplied what could be a really fruitful moral category and used it to harm people. So, um, and I do that, I read fiction to try to reclaim a different account of forgiveness. So I read novels and I read some of the stuff that I've been talking about in the two podcasts. And I'm really excited it's coming out at the end of November. That's amazing. Incredible. Can't wait. Are you going to record an audiobook? There is an audiobook. They, they, they hired a reader to read it for me. So I don't have to. Oh, they I don't hired, have to do my they own. Hired a reader. They did. Yeah, yeah. no, you, it's an absolute nightmare to do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, but you have so such no. a mellifluous <laughs> voice. Yeah, no, no, they, they didn't think so. They hired somebody else. <laughs> oh, wrong! Wow. <laughs> but there will be an audiobook. Yes. And I, I, I know that we mentioned earlier this other podcast that you do, but maybe just just mention it again right now. You know, just in case. I'm also the co-host on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Wonderful. Which you know what? The day that we're recording. I'm the guest. Oh, amazing. Oh, goody. Which Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes at awitchplease.ca. Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. And to our Witch Please apprentice, Zoe Mix. And to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So, you've got to review us if you want to hear me get... Oh, no, Lost no, in the, the woods. Tune. I don't think it's quite that. Lost in the woods. <laughs> Something like that. Thank you this week to Tiny Debbie Jane. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But until then... Later, witches. <laughs>